Recently released Q3 numbers show that investment volumes are still dropping across all property types. But with inflation leveling out, CBRE recently predicted the Federal Reserve may begin cutting interest rates as soon as March of 24, which could drive investment activity recovery by mid-24. Go to junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more about these and other CRE market trends, including why the U.S. market still strongly appeals to international investors and the boom in private credit. Again, that's junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode of The Distribution, I sit down with Bert Vandenhoek, Senior Portfolio Manager, North American Investments at Bowinvest Real Estate Investors. Bowinvest is a global real estate investor that manages over 80 billion and invests globally in metropolitan areas in 10 countries and in six sectors. This strategy enables the company to derive the maximum benefit from trends and development such as population growth, urbanization, and globalization. Bert is responsible for North America business of Bowinvest, which he helped start in 2020. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Bert over the last several years and appreciate his thoughtful approach to manager and market selection, along with Bowinvest's philosophy that societal and financial returns can go hand in hand. This episode is more than just a discussion about the real estate markets. It's about asset allocation, manager identification, evaluation, and selection, and we get into some very specific examples of how to get the attention of your current and prospective LPs. I joked with Bert that this episode should be required listening for anyone trying to get a meeting with him because he very clearly lays out what to do and what not to do. On today's episode, we discuss Bert's career and his unique perspective as an LP, having previously been on the other side of the table as a GP and banker, how non-US-based pension funds think about investing in North America real estate, and the importance of consistent communication, along with a few very tactical examples of what to do and what not to do when communicating with your current and prospective LPs. Let's get into it. Bert, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brandon. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a great honor to be on your podcast today. Well, I'm excited for this conversation. I like to have all my guests start by introducing themselves. So maybe introduce yourself, introduce your company. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm Bert Vandenhoek. I'm the head of the New York office for Bauinvest, meaning I'm responsible for our North American uh, real estate investment portfolio. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Bowinvest, maybe can you describe the organization and kind of what it is that you do and what it means to be heading the the New York office? Yeah, so Bowinvest is uh, actually a fully owned manager by the Dutch uh, Construction Workers Pension Fund. So we invest the real estate portfolio on behalf of that pension fund around the globe. I'm responsible for the North American uh, part of that but we also have people responsible for the European or Asia Pacific investments. In our domestic market in the Netherlands, we are actually a fully vertically integrated general partner acting on behalf of other institutional investors into the various property sectors uh, in the Netherlands. 
So for many of our listeners who might not be familiar with kind of how European pension funds are set up, it sounds like for all intents and purposes, you're acting as a LP that's investing with general partners in North America. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. As a pension fund, we uh, are not able to invest directly and be regarded as an active investor into real estate properly. So we do that through local partners in direct vehicles, and that can be in the form of uh, straight into funds or setting up uh, programmatic joint ventures or other co-investments or other uh, type of indirect investments. Excellent. So before we talk too much about Balinvest, which I want to come back to, I'd like to just you know talk a little bit more about you and in, in your career because I, I I realize that you're you're not from the United States. I think our listeners can probably hear it from your accents. You're from the Netherlands, but maybe walk us through kind of how you how you came into the role that you're in and maybe the evolution of your career so we have that context as we go through the conversation today. Yeah, it's it's quite funny. I'll, I'll probably never lose that accent, even though it's now 27 years ago I I left the Netherlands after starting uh, my career there. I actually grew up as a uh, as a boy from a family who owned a general contractor. So I was uh, always had construction projects uh, when I was uh, a small uh, small boy in, uh, and looking around all these uh, beautiful uh, buildings. So that has always stayed in my heart. I've had basically a 30-year career in, in real estate since. So after I, I started with BGGM, a, another Dutch uh, institutional investor in the early 90s, being part of a development strategy into the German market, I moved to the States and was part of a of Westbrook Partners who invested as a majority investor into a Dutch entity, Dutch listed ent- entity that was under duress and had difficulties raising capital. So. Westbrook was, went in and uh, had a breakup strategy for which I was partly responsible for the lease-up and, and sales. Uh, so that was the start of my international career. I've since had uh, various perspectives and roles uh, within the real estate industry, be it as an investment banker at Morgan Stanley out of London, uh, be it uh, as part of a, a general partner at uh, what is now DWS in the opportunistic fund business, as well as within a partners group. I was uh, an originator and a real estate specialist for that company. So spanning over about 20 years in London. And after that, the opportunity came up to open up the uh, office here in New York for Bauer Invest. As my family was uh, partly already in the U.S., my kids were all uh, going to U.S. colleges, we thought that this was the opportunity to jump into. That's excellent. And maybe it's fate that you uh, grew up in a family of general contractors and now you're working for a pension fund on behalf of the construction industry. Yeah, no, no. my parents say, please do a good job because part of my pension uh, is coming through your uh, the fruits of your labor. So. I, I, would, I would call that a strong alignment of interests, huh? <laughs> Excellent. So one thing that stands out to me about your career is that you've spent time on, you know, all around the investing landscape. You've spent time today as a, you know, investing 
as a limited partner, you've spent time on the banking side, the direct side, the general partner side. How do you think about those experiences as you compare and contrast, you know, your non-limited partner experience with now being an LP? Kind of what if what have those prior experiences taught you about either how to invest or how to work with managers and people, right? Because a lot of people who've only been on one side of the table lack the perspective of what's on the other side of the table. Yeah. No, I think that's a Exactly right. The real estate is and remains, in my view, a relationship business, uh, right? Especially, of course, I'm talking about the private market side of it, particularly where relationships are the key sort of uh, grease in the wheel to uh, make things happen. And to as you enter into long-term relationships, usually 10-year closed-end funds or vehicles, it uh, stands and it's only successful if on the relationship level you are going into these transactions on a mutual understanding and, and good basis. So uh, relationship building has always been one of my key strengths or aspects where I put a lot of emphasis on. And as I have seen it, you know, building relationship from the GP side or investment banking side, I know how difficult it is to get the attention from LPs and what kind of communication is important to which type of LP and not LP, not every LP has the same wishes and desires. So I always empathize with the GPs approaching me in that I'd, I'd like to steer them in the right direction as best as, as I can. Well, I'm sure they appreciate that as well. I will uh, make a note to come back to that point at the end, but uh, our listeners are going to have to stay tuned to make sure they understand what's important to you. So you talked about your career. You left the Netherlands 27 years ago. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, Bow Invest today. And, you know, you're a Dutch pension fund. You're representing them in North America based in the United States. Help us understand kind of what is the ethos or what makes you different than a traditional U.S.-based pension fund in terms of your investment philosophy, your investment approach, et cetera? Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's actually the uh, the exciting part of my job is to bridge the gap between the Dutch culture and the U.S. one where, you know, certain aspects of investing are more important for us than uh, maybe uh, some of the domestic counterparts. And coming from the Dutch institutional investor world, for us, sustainability is, is, is quite at the forefront of our minds. Uh, to be sure, uh, financial returns uh, need to be fir- first and foremost at the right level and cannot be diluted because of sustainable targets. On the contrary, we, we feel that uh, sustainability is treated in the right way, it can actually be very accretive to your investments, or if anything, be a risk mitigant to your investment exposures. So yeah, sustainability is is quite a key part of what we stand for. And local partners that we work with, uh, general partners, will need to embrace this just as much as we, we do in order to have a good and flourishing relationship together. And we'll spend some time on sustainability in just a few minutes. But in addition to kind of bridging that cultural gap and specifically around, you know, investment performance and sustainability, 
Are there other kind of structural differences in terms of how you invest or what, you know, you, you think, how you think about investing that you've observed that, you know, contrast to how other regional investors may, may think? Yep. Well, first of all, we are uh, very long-term in nature, right? So we invest for our beneficiaries who, who have pensions 20, 30, 40 years out. And hence, we also think uh, very much long-term. Hand-in-hand with that, uh, we also apply a lower leverage, I would say, in general, than some of our domestic counterparts. Our limit is 50% loan-to-value, but our overall mandate level at the moment is is more like 30-35%. So we'll have some unlevered exposure here and there as well, not least when uh, we go into developments that we that we can do as part of our mandate. But to the extent uh, possible, we, we uh, prefer to do that uh, on an unlevered basis if that's you know the right way for that particular strategy. Excellent. And in terms of the size and scope and scale of Bowinvest, what's your kind of global, you know, global AUM? What's the plans allocation to how do you think about real estate? Is it real estate and real assets or just real estate? And then how do you think about it regionally? Maybe kind of give us some of the headline metrics so we can understand the the scale and scope. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Bowinvest is a real estate only. Others invest on behalf of our client uh, in infrastructure or other asset classes. We, well, the pension fund has an AUM of about 80 billion uh, US dollars and 20% uh, roughly is uh, allocated to real estate. So quite a high allocation as, as you would expect from a uh, construction workers pension fund leaning into their own mandate. And then out of the 16 billion, a good 70% is domestic, is in the Netherlands and about the remaining Five to six billion is invested indirectly globally. And that's then going down from there, we get to the North American allocation, which is between two and two and a half billion at the moment. And how has that changed over time? Has it always been 20% to real estate with, you know, kind of two, two and a half to North America? Or was that euro before you arrived? What is your what is your North America exposure? How has that changed over time? We've been very active. So 20% was always sort of this elusive target that we had, but never reached. So now we have reached it, but we also in the North America, since I opened up the office now almost four years ago, we increased our AUM here from one and a half to two and a half billion in those four years. So we've, we've really uh, stepped our foot on, on the gas. We had, of course, the tailwinds of the market in the back of us. That helped as well. Uh, so performance of, of the overall portfolio was very strong in some of those years. But we certainly have been very active in investing as well. So a billion, about a billion in allocation over the last four years. We, we invest about roughly 7,500 million chunks in any venture, just to give you, you know, an idea of our uh, bite size for Investments. So would it be fair to say, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that roughly kind of 10, 10 to 12, 10 to 15 different mandates over that period of time? Or what does that look like for, for, the, for the U.S. business? Uh, well, so like I said, we also had uh, quite a strong performance, so which was already on the one and a half billion portfolio. So 
it's certainly not been 10 to 12, but I'd say probably about half of that is, is accurate. And then you mentioned before you, you can't do direct. So what is the what are the structures that you're able to invest through? And if you have a preference, you know, to for going forward, what what would that be? Yeah. So first of all, we cannot own more than fifty percent of, of of any vehicle. Any any stake cannot be over fifty percent. Uh, so that's the main limit that we have. But otherwise, it's it's whatever structure is suitable for the strategy. And I, I always emphasize that st strategy goes before structure. We'll find a good solution in terms of the structure as long as we believe in the strategy. Having said all that, we have with me coming here in New York in order to be closer to the market and forge a closer re relationship and being more closely knit into the overall U.S. network. We've also pursued more programmatic joint ventures over funds that we previously have been doing almost exclusively. So we've tilted more to joint ventures in order to also tailor some of the aspects that we find important that we already touched on, like sustainability and leverage levels, but also to gain a bit more control over the destiny of the strategies that we want to pursue. And in some cases, it's it's even where some of these strategies have maybe not as many fund formats and where uh, joint ventures and are then the only, only real solution for us. So it's interesting that you, you say that. I mean, how do you think about a programmatic JV? Is it is it discretion in a box? Is it, you know, you said you, you kind of said programmatic JV and then you also mentioned the word control. So how do you kind of think about that partnership vis-a-vis -vis the 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 GP that you're investing in, into or alongside of? Yeah. So control is really on the strategic part of the spectrum. Operationally, we really want the local partner to be able to act in the market as they team fit and we don't want to be looking over their shoulder too too closely but let them do their thing and let them uh, trust them that they they do the right thing for us on our behalf but strategically there's some major decisions that, that we'd like to be involved with in those uh, type of programmatic joint ventures and it's mostly acquisition divestments financing capital calls uh, dividends, th those those kind of major items. And you you already mentioned yourself, investment in the box. So we'll, we'll even try to make that easier by listing the set of criteria along which we, we would like the strategy to be deployed. And as long as it's within all those uh, criteria, the approval mechanism is, is quite lenient. And how do you think about, you know, established managers versus new managers? Do you have any criteria around prior track record or management team, you know, uh, cohesion or, or longevity? I mean, how, how do you think about the profile of the operator or the manager that you're, you know, considering investing with? Yeah, so we've, I'd say, tended to be more geared towards the middle to larger end of this GP spectrum. And that's simply an outcome of the requirements that we have 
from a regulatory perspective, from a reporting perspective, that those bells and whistles are the extra services that we require. In most instances, are are bound by by our own regulator that are putting uh, usually too much onus on on the local partners if they tend to be too small or too execution oriented only, then that match doesn't work out. Uh, so it's not for you know the the reason that we don't want to invest with smaller uh, local partners, but the setup of these local partners usually don't quite uh, stack up to the requirements that we have. Yeah. What's an example of that just to help our listeners understand? Is it around like reporting or is it around governance? Like how do you how do you think about some of those elements? Yeah, it's it's mostly reporting, but also things simple things like sustainability where we do require a GRASP participation and a certain familiarity and and track record in having done so. Sustainability, not to belabor the point right on, on this topic, but uh, is also an evolving phenomenon and we, we probably evolved to further requirements on that front. And those those are the type of examples that yeah, some smaller shops are, are simply not, not set up to do. That makes sense. Earlier you said, I want to get into kind of investment thesis and kind of what are you, what are you most, you know, what are the strategies you're most interested in? And you made a comment that, you know, you believe that its strategy goes before structure. So as you think about, you know, setting out your allocation today and over the next several years, what are some of the strategies that you're most focused on? And maybe kind of help us understand the strategies, but also the reason why. Like, what what's the what's driving those strategic decisions? Yeah, uh, it's it's important to first of all maybe also explain that our mandate is seventy five percent private and twenty five percent listed REIT, and we really think in uh, sector strategies. So finding the specialist for uh, sectors that we want to build the exposure on in, into our uh, portfolio. Uh, so winding the clock, clock back uh, for a, a few years, we were probably uh, very much exposed to the four traditional sectors, but already, you know, five, six years ago, we started actually adding to the uh, alternative sectors at the expense of office and retail. And nowadays, our office exposure is lower than 10% and uh, and so is our retail, whereas the alternative exposure is over 25 or 20, 25%. So that allocation process is very important for us that we, in our portfolio construction, we, we keep the control over tearing the portfolio allocation in the direction that we, we feel are in line with the trends in the market. Anecdotally, uh, over the last 12 months, we've outperformed the fund indexes by a good 600 basis points uh, simply by having these type of allocations uh, mostly, and then also the alphas created by, by some of the selected managers. Is that 600 bips outperformance on the global portfolio of privates, or is that on the collective portfolio or just the North America side? 
North, North America, private. So when you say, you know, so we're talking about, you know, so our listeners, some of them are from real estate, some are private equity, venture capital, some are agnostic to the alts altogether. So maybe help us understand, you know, I think the, the four major food groups, I think are pretty clear, but maybe just kind of recap those for us. And then as you are defining alts, what is that alt within real estate within North America? What does that mean? Yeah, we, we uh, diving uh, quite deep into the uh, real estate world here, but uh, just to give a couple of examples, once I opened the office in 2020, not long thereafter, we did our first investments into life science. And not long uh, after that, uh, we did our first investments globally for BioVest in North America in data centers. Uh, so those are some good examples of going into sectors that are not part of the four major Put groups. And then we've also invested in single family rental, which is part of a, you know, not quite the same setup as apartment investment, multifamily, but we consider that as a horizontal apartments or multifamily investments. We're very familiar with that in, in the Netherlands. And here we are pursuing a built to rent community uh, strategy. So going forward, what what are we thinking about? Well, we do have, and that's why I mentioned also the the listed REIT portfolio. Uh, certain sectors are well served in on the public side. Call it uh, self storage or manufactured housing or other of these type of alternatives. But we, to the extent we feel that the private side either complements that or is different in its approach we still may uh, want to add to it. So self-storage, student housing, senior housing, manufactured housing, all those type of alternative uh, sectors are in scope for 2024. I, I guess, how does that compare or contrast to the non-North America strategies of Bow Investor? They also, is the organization also pursuing the kind of alternatives or further out the the risk curve, you know, alpha generating sectors in, in the Netherlands and in Asia, or or is it more kind of the major food groups and a more conservative approach? So in the Netherlands, it's more the main food groups, although we do have hotel and healthcare uh, sector funds uh, that we manage in the Netherlands. More broadly, in, ter in terms of European and Australian investments, we have similar setups in terms of Really, the building blocks being whatever living sector you can think of, as well as whatever industrial sector you can think of, warehousing, storage. Those are the two main food groups that we have exposure to. And then the rest is, is built out, you know, according to the, the local trends and market opportunities. So I think it makes sense to give, you know, credit where credit is due, because it sounds like, you know, you, you know, not only is the performance validated the, the, the approach, but, you know, it seems that you're on the earlier side for some of these strategies that you started deploying capital into several years ago when you arrived, which are now just kind of being increasingly talked about, you know, by allocators. What's the, the secret sauce? I mean, how do you develop, you know, your research and your, your conviction and, how, how did you get to a point where, you know, you land in the United States and, you know, I'm sure you'd, you know, obviously you'd been active in the market, but land with Bow Invest in the United States. And 
you know, you have a you have a defined thesis that you should invest in life science and data centers, really when not a lot of other people are doing it. Is there a research team? Is this, you know, are you responsible for your own research in North America? How do you develop convic- conviction around the different strategies that you're deploying capital around? It's it's a combination of our research team, which is based in, in the Netherlands that see these trends and and you know, we have of course regular conversations as to what we feel are, is most opportune. And uh, don't forget, we also have a listed team in, in Amsterdam where we can feed off of in terms of, you know, market intelligence and trends. But ultimately, it's also being out there in the market locally and hear what, what people have to say. The interesting thing about my job is that I have many managers that come up with great ideas and present them to me. And out of these many, many proposals, I tried to filter out sort of the cream of the crop, the diamonds of those proposals, and then take a step back and, and try to form my own opinion as to what, what I feel is the right move next. At the time, you know, COVID, it was very obvious to me that life science was the way to go. And that was also the first opportunity that came across our desk. And at the same time, everybody was only able to work out of uh, non-office locations through the technology that we all uh, are enjoying. So data centers was also, from that perspective, a very obvious choice to to go after, uh, whereas both were not yet present in the portfolio. So that's interesting. Kind of a, a two-part question. For the U.S.-based pension funds, many of them use consultants for a whole variety of reasons, not least of which is they tend to be very constrained by staffing and, and budgets, and they need some extra leverage. It sounds like you know you have a very unique role being based in New York, focused on North America, lean team here, bigger team in Netherlands. How do you think about you know do you use consultants at all? You know whether consultant in the traditional sense, gatekeeper portfolio allocation sense or consultants in the, you know, paid to help me do research kind of sense, or is it all internally and kind of what's the philosophy behind the approach? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's, it's an important difference between domestic LPs and ourselves. So on the investment selection part of the equation that we perform, we don't use consultants, but between, but having said that, between the client and ourselves, there is a fiduciary consultant in between who, you know, depending on the situation, can be used as a second opinion by the client, but also is very much involved on behalf of the client in the strategic formulation of, of the mandates. But the discretion about uh, uh, portfolio construction and strategic allocation remains with Powinvest, so that's all in-house. But we sort of get challenged by the fiduciary consultant that has a better expertise, if you will, than than the trustees at the pension fund in order to challenge our proposals. That makes sense. So, so going back to some of these strategies, they're clearly niche strategies. They're they're more alternative, as you said, and. You made a comment earlier that sometimes there's not even a fund format for you to invest in, right? You're probably inundated with manager requests, but how do you find 
you know, that diamond in the rough, the cream of the crop, you know, what, what does that process look like? Do you, can you rely on people coming to you or do you have to go out and seek them? What does your acquisition process look like, if you will? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a two-way street. You cannot just be sitting back and hoping that the right, uh, you know, OTP or local partner is going to knock on your door. You also go have to go out there and communicate into the market what it is that you're looking for, uh, just as we're doing now, <laughs> by the way. But I've done that through multiple forums, in the real estate industry forums that, that are out there. And I find that through the participation of those, we can be very transparent in what we're looking for, say for the next 12 months or whatever, for the foreseeable future, so that the GPs actually uh, have a fairly good idea of where we are and what we stand for. Uh, so the communication is always two ways. In order to be active, or rather by being actively participating in those industry forums, whether on webinars or in conferences or other uh, platforms, it all helps to steer the supply side, if you will, into the right direction and, and, and make it the two-way street. Yeah. Well, I hope maybe this podcast will serve as a good reference material for prospective GPs. You can just direct them here and save yourself hundreds of hours of, of meeting time. Because if it doesn't meet a criteria, then, uh, then everybody knows it's, it's, uh, it's educational purposes only. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's why I also appreciate uh, you know, your initiative to do this because I think beside me there there must be other LPs that have the desire to do this exactly for this reason. I, I recall a conversation and and you know disclose however much you feel comfortable that we were talking about you know your pursuit of a manager, right? So this manager, you know, you had a specific conviction, you hadn't seen the manager yet, you know, you hadn't nobody had come to you with the right product offering to meet your your strategy requirements. And and you know, we could talk about who the specific manager is or not. I, I don't I don't have a strong point of view. But what really struck me was kind of that approach. Like what did you do as an LP to go out and figure out who would be a good manager for you? How did you find them? Because sitting on the other side of the table, I think a lot of industry participants and GPs presume that as an LP, you see everything and all you have to do is, you know, filter it out and you can choose your pick. And, you know, it's just a matter of choosing what you want off the menu. But I remember this at least one instance where you very clearly articulated that the item you wanted wasn't on the menu. So maybe walk me through kind of that, that process a little bit. Yeah. I think when we started, I, we, we talked about, you know, my experience being on the other side as a GP. So I've been part of a, of a GP, so I, I have a certain affinity with how to reach into the market. So the fortunate position that I can talk to other LPs that uh, may have a reference. We use legal or tax advisors, and they may have references. Placement agents are also a very good way of getting informed about the market. Investment bankers, they have their specialists in the real estate industry and, and so forth. And of course, ultimately, the long list of uh, GP and local partners that you can unearth in, uh, in industry events or, or other means. And last but not least, those that come to you. But even 
within that whole gambit, there's there's a whole host of avenues that you can that I at least use in order to get to the right selection. Yeah, well, I think it it's resourceful, and you know, I I, I do think you're somewhat unique given given your role and your background. But it was it was very surprising to me that it's not the choose the item you want off the menu as the default modality. So I think that's a good good takeaway for for some of our listeners. So a manager wants to come to you and they've got a great idea, the best idea ever, of course. And how do you like what do you want to see from them? Like, you know, you you mentioned you appreciate the the challenge of getting through to LPs. You're obviously very busy, you're inundated with a lot of requests from different people. Like, what is it that will help somebody stand out, whether it's about their communication approach, how they pitch, what you want to see? Like, how do you separate, you know, the wheat from the chaff as quickly as possible? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult question, and it changes all, all the time as as my priorities and preferences change. So, uh, first and foremost, communication is about consistency to me. It's not picking up the phone once in a blue moon and and hope you know throw a dart at the dartboard and and hope that it sticks, but rather by uh, ha- having a consistent dialogue get a better understanding of what my priorities are at that moment. And maybe at that moment, you know, the palette of services that that GP can offer me is not a match. And then also leave me alone (laughs) because there is no point of, you know, trying again and again. And maybe I say yes, the third time you you ask. So consistency is is an important part of, of the communication to me. You know, having a better understanding of my background, of the the type of capital I stand for. Don't come to me with a highly levered, opportunistic uh, strategy because that is probably not going to fly with a 50% leverage li- limit. And also don't come to me with individual asset proposals because I cannot invest in a single asset. It needs either a programmatic joint venture or already a, a portfolio of assets. And those are very basic no-go areas that if somebody would simply do its homework, even from the website or by uh, actually being able to uh, you know, have a dialogue with me, then a lot of time wasting is, is, is basically off the table. So from a very tactical perspective, I'm a GP, I have something, I haven't done my homework. I send you an email. I say, Hey, I've got a, a retail, you know, neighborhood retail, single asset. You just ignore it. Right. Or do you respond and say no? So single offerings I, I ignore because then you have even having the homework of looking at my website. So let's assume I've done some homework. I look at your website and I come to you with a data center strategy. That's really interesting. Is it fair to assume that you'll read the email and open up a pitch deck or or like how do I think about that? Because I think there's a there's a degree of like, you know, how are you professionally persistent but not, you know, overly intrusive, right? I mean, we we obviously people want to respect your time, but how do they think about I mean, maybe a better way to ask the question is how do you triage your inbox? <laughs> Let's just start there cuz cuz we could go tactics, but like You've got a lot coming at you. How do you think about prioritization in terms of who you communicate with, who you respond to, who you don't? Do you have a philosophy, a general philosophy on that? Yeah. 
well, you you recognize the sender or not, right? And in is is very much a filter. It's a human business. It's a relationship business. So definitely is uh, something that I I still uh, work off of. But not to say that I, with names that I won't recognize, as long as you know, to me, it needs to be fairly succinct and in a matter of maybe a, an, an intro paragraph, but then in a fairly succinct way in bullet form, I need to understand what this strategy is going to be about and whether that is actually matching my priorities at the time. And I'm fairly diligent in responding because, as I mentioned, I think it's a two-way street. So if, if it's a data center proposal in your example, at the moment, that's not my priority. I would say, great to you know learn from you, update me from time to time. But at the moment, this is not my priority. So I'm not pursuing it at the moment. And, and then you go from there. Understood. Let's assume that somebody gets you with a um, a strategy that is your priority, and you wanna you wanna meet with them. You take a meeting. Like, what do you expect on on a first meeting? Because ultimately, I'm sure you know that's where you really start to separate you know the people you want to continue to build a relationship with from those that were kind of a one and one and done. Yeah, if if I'm really in a search, what I usually do is a first half hour call. I let the manager choose whoever they want to have on the call, but it's probably a good idea to then have also somebody who's actually pursuing the strategy and part of the portfolio or investment teams and walk me through the strategy and how they differentiate themselves and position themselves in the market. Probably with one or two case studies to really get a feel for where they're different and where they add value. And that should be it. That should be enough for the first half hour. You know, it's also then about intro of the, of the manager. What is the ownership? What is, what is your DNA? And through that team, you get an idea of whether this is going to be a fit or not. So that's like the half hour pitch in which I have a fairly good idea where this manager's sits in the overall long list of, of managers that I'm uh, looking at. And would it be fair to say that you give pretty quick feedback on, you know, yes, it's a good fit, let's continue, or no, it's not? Yeah. So after that first intro, and depending on, you know, how, how long a long list <laughs> I want to keep, there's usually a fairly quick idea as to whether I want a follow-up meeting or whether this is absolutely no match. I have two more questions here and then I want to move on to, to market fundamentals before we wrap up. But are there any things that would immediately disqualify things that you've seen over your career, maybe even learned from experience, but maybe seen as an LP where if you're a manager with a proposal for you and you show up, what are like anything that like absolutely do not pass go, you know, let's assume the strategy meets some subset of your requirements and, and they've done their, their homework, but they show up to the meeting Anything that will immediately get somebody disqualified? Usually it's when there's too much shortism in the strategy. So if it's like a merchant build, merchant developer, really looking to, you know, with astronomically high IRRs, but really looking to, you know, realize in 
two, three, max four years, let's say, then that's certainly not a match with our long-term view. So those are usually quickly out. The other ones that continue to make my life difficult is those more, say, value-add strategies that have a bit more longer perspective, but where the leverage is still well over 50%. And unfortunately, that's a regulatory and pension thing that I cannot change. Then you get into tailored strategies if, if, if the manager is set up to do so. But if it's just a one solution and that's a fund with a 65% LTV, I'm sorry, I cannot do it. Uh, so those, those are pretty quick strikeouts. And then the third one I mentioned is if, if somebody doesn't hasn't heard of Cresby or doesn't stand for sustainability, that's usually a immediate strikeout as well. So final question on this area, what, if any, current strategies are you searching for today? Well, I think I mentioned it, the, the 2024 for us is uh, alternatives. So a specialist in any of the alternative sectors are of interest to us. I'd uh, single out uh, manufactured housing. I've been searching for that for some time now. I've yet to find a manufactured housing manager of that can provide the scale that I'm looking for with a say $7,500 million t- equity ticket. And that is sufficiently differentiated from the listed market. Good to know. So if anybody's made it this far in the podcast and is a manufactured housing operator at scale with a differentiated strategy from the public markets, your email may, your email may stand out in, in Bert's inbox. You can, you can reference the podcast. Okay. So we have a few minutes left. I want to get your, your kind of take on the markets. I mean, you know, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the markets and the market fundamentals. Things are changing so rapidly. You're based in North America, representing a, a Dutch pension that invests globally in real estate and other asset classes. I don't want to oversimplify it, but when you look out at the market over the next 12 to 24 months, what do you see as kind of the biggest headwinds that are facing commercial real estate in in North America in particular, so for the business that you're, you're responsible for? It's got to be office, right? And so it's not just office, it's the spilling over effects from pain, that distress that we're going to see in office. So the spillover effect number one is banks getting more restricted in lending, not only to office, but also to other parts of the real estate industry. And then, so availability of of debt capital, the matching of the seller and the buyer expectations, more transactions. So far, we're still holding back, all of us meaning, and not, not just me, but the market is holding back, transaction volumes are, are way down. So that is a concern. And I, I'd say also the spillover effect from office in particularly in, in more urban areas is what is going to happen with the yeah, downtowns that are not functioning at the moment because the office attendance is below par. So what are the spillover effect to the rest of the, the real estate market that is catering to tenants that are, to a certain extent, dependent on office workers being at the offices in, in downtown. So that's 
the main concern that I need to translate back to my headquarters. And having said all that, what what are then the 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 opportunities that still arise in this market, and how are opportunities in this economy perhaps stronger than those in in other regions? Yeah, and I think we all know that there's clearly headline risk in probably most markets around the world these days. Unfortunately, has the view of headquarters changed vis-a-vis North America as an investable market? as a result of some of the headlines and real kind of structural risks that exist here? Yeah, I, I'd say it's a bit more, I, I need to come up with better arguments for, and a bit more selective, that's the word I was looking for, in terms of what, what we will pursue. And hence, you know, I, I clearly am steering to the alternative markets where I, we feel that that is a different shader diversification effect of what the U- deeper the U.S. market can offer relative to other regions. And it's also one where we feel that the tailwind is strongest. Are there any like existential, I mean, from the perspective of the Netherlands, is there concern around the upcoming election, how the different conflicts around the world might impact the markets? Or is that kind of just not specific to North America? That's just a general, you know, awareness that that you have to have as a global investor yeah it's it's more part of the overall general investment risk if we're getting maybe in the next four weeks to we've just passed a potential shutdown of the u.s government and and we may get to it in mid-november those are sort of more heightened alerts where people are asking me more questions about what's going on here and what do you expect and what what do you expect is the consequence in the real estate market but by and large these are more tangential risk rather than specific you know execution risks in just the last few minutes that we have i think one of the and and by no means is this the least important so i saved the best for last but going back to sustainability you and i have had lots of conversations over the years around just some of the real challenges that you and Bow Invest face in finding managers that meet, you know, all of your criteria, but in particular the focus around sustainability. You know, kind of what is the message? You know, there's there's it's it's politicized, it's philosophy. Like there's a lot of different approaches here. Like what so so if I'm, you know, if you're this is your stage, what would you share with GPs who either tell you that it's not important to them, you know, forget the fact that you won't invest with them today, but like as a philosophical approach, what can you share with us that might help the market better understand why this is so important to bow invest to, you know, into many investors globally, despite this kind of like fairly significant gap in, in knowledge that still exists, particularly in North America around, can you have, can you be green or can you be sustainable? and have good economic returns. So how, how do you kind of think about that that conundrum that still exists? Yeah, I think where we where I'm coming from in the Netherlands, 40% of the low sea level. If we're not in our being, in our DNA to to be cognizant of the climate risks, but also more in general about doing good with the capital that we invest in this. Yeah, so I'd say from a philosophy approach, we we are not the type of investor that is seeking the last 
extend the, uh, the last uh, dollar out of out of each investment at the cost of some sustainability, whether it's green investing, but also social impact investing. We stand for a certain balance between societal returns and financial returns. And that's uh, something where we hope that deploying our capital also in the U.S. market in such a way we can move other capital sources as well as other uh, managers uh, into that direction and have a better world for it as an outcome. Well, I think that's a that's a great place to wrap up. I always like to ask my guests if people want to learn more about Bell Invest. You've obviously shared a lot already. They want to get in touch with you. What's the best way for them to do it? Is there a website? Is there an email? Is there LinkedIn? How do you prefer you know for people to 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 learn more or to contact you? There's always a website, but I'd say the the email is is the easiest. That's the best way to reach me. Okay. Well, that works. Well, Bert, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. As always, I've really enjoyed our conversation. And until next time. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash I N forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at juniperquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.